Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercy University's Center for Theology and Public Life, and with me, as always, is the David P. Gushy. How are you today, David? I'm good, Jeremy. Uh, how are you, my friend? Pretty good. Once again, uh, if you're listening to us today, we are back on our recording rig. It's not a mobile situation for us anymore, but we are outside. So if you hear the lovely sounds of nature or a passing airplane, please be patient with us. We're sitting uh, on my back deck where I have moved out this summer. I've decided I can't bear air conditioning. I, I like sitting and working outside, even in Atlanta in the summer, which makes me very odd, I recognize. But, it's uh, like a sauna. I've come, to, I've come to understand that that I just like being outside. So anyway, that's where we are today. Thanks for listening in. Yeah, we're glad you're here. Uh, the goal of this conversation is we're going to talk a little bit about the state of discourse. We've all sort of forgotten how to talk to each other, especially online, which is odd in this season where we have to talk to each other almost exclusively online. Uh, David, do you want to tell us a little about the catalyzing event? So, um, I put up a post through uh, Baptist News Global, which is now uh, employing me to be a columnist, um, and uh, made a suggestion that it might be possible still for us to reopen our churches at this time using these safety protocols that I outlined from the Catholic Church. And um, the article did not land well, and I, it inflamed a lot of a lot of angry response. Um, you know, one thing, it might be interesting for readers to know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that, or I mean, hearers to know what yeah. it's like to be on the receiving end of that. Because um, you've done that more than once. You've, I have, <laughs> I have. You've been um, a pariah for going up against torture and for LGBT inclusion. Yeah. 2006, uh, 2014. I remember it well. Um, I think it's, you know, I was reading, uh, I'm preparing to teach my class on genocide again, and I was reading that there was an inverse relationship between distance and willingness to kill. Mm-hmm. The further away you are from somebody, the easier it is to, to kill them because you don't see their face, right? And I think there must be an inverse relationship between abusiveness and, will, I mean, between distance and abusiveness in terms of speech. If you have to look in somebody's eye who's sitting three feet from you and abuse them verbally, mm-hmm. that'd be a lot harder than sitting at your computer, um, especially anonymously, uh, like on Twitter, like you can. Uh, it's less so on Facebook, because Facebook you have a name. I guess sometimes those are fake names? They can be. Okay. I, I know several people with multiple burner Facebook accounts that they can deactivate yeah. if it gets too hot. Okay. So... Um, Anyway, part it's the nature of the medium. The distance um, promotes abusiveness, I think. Um, and also part of the medium is the more inflammatory, the more attention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is really hard to protect decent discourse space uh, in social media. And... Um, so anyway, after this article posted, I had 48 hours of hell of, um, of, of people telling me how wrong I was. I didn't, what happens is after 
the initial barrage, I find that I, I can't initially bear to read the comments in detail. I get the general gist, mm-hmm. um, feel this sinking feeling in my gut, recoil in horror, and try to think about something else unsuccessfully for a while. Because I'm a human being like anybody else. And I'm not a especially thick-skinned person. And I also am reminded, I'm just at a, at a mental health level, that having been through enough of these rodeos and now being almost 60 years old, I think my resiliency for these kinds of attacks is lower than it used to be. And um, it's one reason why I, I didn't actually have an opinion column for three years, from 2017 until Monday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> welcome back. Welcome back. Um, because partly because I found my resiliency wasn't as good. Um, so, um, so the the reminder of incivility, and the more people think is at stake, the angrier they feel entitled to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, we're, we're talking about a society that is in pain. Uh, a pandemic that has been grotesquely mismanaged in this country. Um, a sense of indefiniteness, like when will this ever end? Right. J- the the 2020 situation, it feels, the joke online is that every day something new and horrible is going to happen. Yeah, I saw somebody, uh, like a bingo card. Did you have this happening in 2020? Yeah. You know, um, some people have said 2020 is already like three years long, right? You know, you had the impeachment stuff. Remember that? Right. That was like three years ago. It was, right. You know, and then you had the presidential election process uh, with the Democratic primaries. Remember that? That happened last year. Uh, yeah, that was like a thousand it's, years ago. And it's like two months. <laughs> yeah. And and then the pandemic. And then the, the idea was, okay, well, we, we've done our lockdown and now, now mm-hmm. that, okay. And then the George Floyd and the, and the protests. Um. And then the reaction to all of that, and now this phase two of of the pandemic just being worse than phase one. So everybody is stressed, and everybody's afraid, and of course our our polarization left right is worse than ever. I think, though maybe on another politics podcast I can talk about some signs of hope there. But in general, the hardliners are just as hardline on both sides, right? Right, and um. So the difference for me in this experience was when I took on torture in 2006 and climate change in 2005 and became LGBT inclusive very visibly in 2014, I was offending the right. I was offending conservative Christians. And it was the conservative Christians who canceled me, Mm -hmm. uh, who... Literally, the evangelicals perfected cancel culture. Yeah, they literally disinvited me from stuff and canceled contracts. And I mean, I had speaking appearances ranging from Perth, Australia to Hardin Simmons in Texas to smallest little schools in Kentucky to whatever. We're sorry, we're not going to be able to have you come, you know. So, um, and then a, a year of abuse online. Yeah, I mean, very. I mean, highly, highly sophisticated abuse, including like Twitter trolls, and mm-hmm. you know, um, you find yourself in combat with blocking and muting, and 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 just all the stuff that a lot of people who do this for a living or whatever, or who do this as their thing, they know what that's like, right? But it hadn't really been my experience. So, my overall move from evangelical center to 
evangelical left to post-evangelical has involved a constant barrage of, well, what happened, I would say, is a constant barrage of attacks from the right until they just finally say, you don't exist for us anymore. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the blessed state where you are dead to them, they usually leave you alone because you're dead to them. You don't dig up corpses, right? Um, and beat on them much. So Been, uh, unpersoned. I, so, yeah, so Christianity Today magazine or such and such a person online in general doesn't bother with me anymore. So that's kind of nice. But what happened this time were the attacks came from my left. They came from my, my tribe, my group, the people who generally like what I say. And so that's a different kind of thing. Um, and um, I'm reading a lot of social psychology these days because the, the last book I use in my um, genocide class is called Becoming Evil by James Waller. And it's a, you must read it if you have it. It's an incredible book. And it's a social psych text about all the different kinds of social psychological processes of people becoming perpetrators of mass evil. And um, one, of, one of the things he says is the need for approval is a, is a universal human need. And um, you never outgrow it. Three-year-olds need it. Mm-hmm. And 58-year-olds like me need it. And so to have my social group turn on me and say, this is really, really wrong-headed, um, it hurts just as much as if I was a, f- a three-year-old being uh, bullied on the playground, you know. So, so the first reaction is, oh, my gosh, what have I done here? And then there's a bit of defensiveness like, how dare you? This is awful. You said that. Was that you? I loved you. You know, we were friends. Well, I guess not. You know, and so you go through all that stuff. becomes personal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then a kind of a, I hope to get to it at a, even at a spiritual level. God, what do you want to teach me here? What did I do wrong here? What can I learn? And, and so I came up with a, a restatement of my position on Facebook 48 hours after the original article. And I actually liked the restatement a whole lot better than the original article. So I learned from it. And you know what was interesting was I heard there are people who think that the best way to correct somebody is to blast them on Facebook. Right. The hot take. The hot take. But then there are people who, say, who find your email address and say, can we talk? Or who call you. Um. And you actually find out who has the Christian graces mm-hmm. in the difference, I think. And so I heard from a number of people quietly Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday saying, I'd love to talk with you about this. I think I can help or, or I know you must be hurting right now. Could we talk it over or, or whatever? Pastors, mm-hmm. um, fellow academics, former students, um, they ministered to me, and because they were not making me defensive, I was able to hear them a whole lot better than the people who were calling me a monstrous, idiot, evil, demon spawn. Mm-hmm. Take Christian out of Christian ethic. Right, right. I don't even want to know what everybody said, because yeah. again, you literally cannot absorb that much. Uh, I can't anyway, right? So, in general, um, that is always how it goes for me. Um you say something now there's like like the, the difference is with changing our mind for example in L, in the lgbt inclusion take in 2014 all kinds of abuse but i believed and still believe that i was right i never never stepped back from that position i i i, I took the abuse because i believed that i was right and i still do in this case i saw uh ways in which the original article was flawed and I 
address those um, while defending what I thought could mm-hmm. still to be defended. Did and, you change your base argument? Um, if the base argument... Have you recanted? If the base argument is, um, if at all possible, using proper safety protocols, it would be great if we could be back in church together. I have not changed that. Um, but what people heard was, well, there's the ridiculous mishearings. He doesn't even care about health. He doesn't care about safety protocols. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that was a total misreading of the original article. But, but the thing that, that I was most concerned about was that some pastors may have heard, you are wrong to be hesitating. I am judging you negatively that you are not back in mm-hmm. the building. Now, that is definitely not what I was saying. And, um, and so I very, very much clarified that. And, I, and this is a local church decision made by the authorities in local congregations based on all factors that they must consider. I should have said that. It isn't that I ever did not believe that, but I just didn't say that clearly. So um, anyway... So that's uh, that's a clarification, but but the idea that going to church in person is a value and a high value, and if possible, if we should we should attempt it, mm-hmm. if possible, under the proper health protocols that we talked about in the last program, I still believe that. I do not recant. <laughs> So uh, there are kind of one value thinkers who are like, well, that itself is an irresponsible position. But they're probably this, you know, this is the same people who would say it's irresponsible to send kids back to school in any way this fall. Mm-hmm. It's irresponsible for colleges to be open at all this fall. Businesses shouldn't be open. Gyms shouldn't be open. Nothing should be open. And, and you know, I can certainly understand that. And you know, if we get to, I mean, we may get to a certain point in this pandemic in the next two weeks or four weeks that it's like, nah, everything has to be shut down all the time. Yeah, m- my church currently offers a way to gather in person and every day um the my fellow pastors and i read for hours check every news yeah. source and we're ready to pull the plug yeah because we love our people yeah. and and so um by the way this is interesting example of how ethical decision making works um there aren't one size fits all ethical decisions and and every ethical decision involves a very close reading of the situation, right? Um, The details of the situation are pivotal. And so I often tell my students, to be a good ethicist, you not only have to have a good grasp of scripture and values, you also have to be somebody who can read reality well. Mm -hmm. You you got to know how to gather data and and crunch it and make sense of it, and that's best done in community, you know? Um, So, and it's contextual, what we say today on July 10th may be completely irrelevant on August 1st because right. because the numbers or maybe the maybe the researchers show you know this new strain of COVID 19 mm-hmm. is Lysol doesn't kill it anymore right so we got st- we would close and start everything over right because what you thought would work doesn't work so okay right if we have to have a whole another year of of lockdown. I mean, it may be a total restart. It may be, especially if we get a new president, that one of the first things that 
the new president would do would be to say, in light of all available evidence, we must entirely shut down the society for three months or two months or whatever. Um, that's not going to happen under this president, I think. But, um, but anyway, for now, the, argu- the argument was totally contextual. In this moment, might it be possible using these safety protocols, which is exactly what you and I talked about last time, that your church believes that right now it is. Mm-hmm. And it might not be possible tomorrow, but today it is. Right. We're preparing for this. I'm preaching this Sunday. There's a sermon written. If mm-hmm. I have to preach it to a camera instead, I'm ready to do right. that. And that has to be that has to be the case in every sector. Uh, and, and businesses are learning. If we can't have people inside our space, how can we serve them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, universities have, you know, have moved online and we'll have to be ready to do it at a moment's notice this fall. Um some have already going to decide. They've already decided it's going to be online. Mm-hmm. Um, the The issue with children is, I think, I think especially difficult because the socialization of children is so important. Socialization and education of children is deeply set back. We know this. There's data. Um, how many uh, educational losses are already visible? Um, I'm I'm yeah. doing that same sort of evaluation, thinking about spiritual development. Yeah. We've lost a whole, the United States, the American church has lost a summer of faith development for its young people. That's true. And often summer is the most intensive time, right? All the studies show that's where the big leaps happen. And I hate that that's the case because I think the, the prolonged exposure to a diverse faith community is where you have the best shot at. But the time that the kids are most open to it are these big experiences and we've lost all of them. My grandkids have not been able to be in church since March. And um, they're a tender age of spiritual development, so mm-hmm. they're not singing those songs and getting those Bible studies. There was no Bible school in person this year. Right. Um, so these are real values anyway. Um, so I was – so here's maybe – you pick up the one you'd like to, to pick up, but the left can be just as hateful as the right. Um, the idea that – somebody has an opinion that is not tracking with the majority opinion in our tribe mm-hmm. uh, can get you seriously attacked. Yeah, both sides are ready to cancel you. Yes, they are. And um, they already have, like, blanket rejected the other side, right? I mean, so Trump is on the one side and, you know, whatever you call the other side. I mean, they're already – it's a mass cancel. There's Right. The you are beyond the pale. This we know. But even within the tribe, within our group, if you stray or are perceived as straying mm-hmm. or offer an opinion that doesn't quite fit, you are at risk of a barrage. And the barrage, what's so different about it is not it's not just, let me give you five reasons why your argument is mistaken. It's abusive language, abusive language, abusive language. Unless you recant... You need to be ruined. Mm-hmm. Cancel your account. Delete your account. Yeah, it, we we build purity tests, shibboleths, and they're they're always moving targets too. You have to vote and vote as you have to build your worldview perfectly down the party line. You cannot nuance any of these. It's all binary. Um. At least that is that is the direction we're going, and and 
depending on what particular part of a subcultural space mm-hmm. you occupy, it can be more intense yeah. or less intense. But um, I felt repentant, partly for badly done stuff in my in my argument, in my article, but also for t- for times in which I have ever drifted towards demonizing or abusive language towards people that I disagree with. When I was in the throes of the LGBT debate and I was having people come at me, um, there were times in which I was pretty aggressive in my responses and it was partly because I was being wounded and it was also because I felt the need to speak up for those who I think have been mistreated. So it was solidarity with the oppressed, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the idea that we see through a glass darkly, nobody has the absolute truth. The conversation is how you learn things. Um, that diversity of opinion is a value. Uh, that freedom of expression is a value. Um, that sometimes you make breakthroughs through ferocious but substantive conversation right. about things as opposed to everybody nodding their heads and agreeing with whatever the current mm-hmm. party line is. Um, and that institutions, certain institutions are charged with protecting that cluster. That was the third point in my Facebook post on Wednesday. Um, to say, I believe in old school liberal values of freedom of conscience, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, um, truth arising in the clash of ideas. Um, and I respect and deeply cherish every institution that is based on that value. One of them was Baptist News Global itself. They mm-hmm. were under pressure to, to pull the article. Yeah, they turned the comment section off very yeah. quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were under they were under pressure to to retract the article, and they wouldn't do it. We um, made some slight modifications, and then my my understanding is that my Facebook um, post uh, was added to the bottom of it. That's excellent. Yeah, it was it was more nuanced. It right. Yeah. So I mean, eleven hundred words was n- needed another eighteen hundred words for it to be what it needed to be. So there's a lesson there. But anyway, so they said, "No, nah, we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. We're not." We are not going to let, at least in this case, if I had been, it was funny, it was interesting watching the main editor say, okay, I'm going to look at this. Nah, this is not beyond the pale. This is a conversation worth having, and we're not going to be pressured into pulling this article off the page. Um, Also, uh, I had some conversation with my president and provost this week, Ed Mercer. And they basically, in their own understated way, said, Interesting piece. People would like it. People wouldn't like it. But but that is what academics are supposed to do. There you go. Um, I remember one time uh, Bill Underwood, our president at Mercer, said to me, I know you're doing your job if I hear occasionally from people about some outrageous thing that you have supposedly said or done, especially if I hear sometimes from the left and sometimes from the right. I like that because it means you're doing your job. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've loved about Mercer is the resolute protection of my religious and academic 
freedom. When my Changing Our Mind book came out, I mean, people wanted my scalp. And, um, and the president said, I, well, actually, there's this story. I had written something. It was before the book. I was kind of toying with some of the ideas. And I had written something. And I, I sent it to him. And I said, what do you think about this? Is this okay? It was like 2012, maybe. He said, first of all, you never need to run anything by me. Um, we will always protect your um, ability to express your, you know, your thoughtful views. Now, I mean, if I were, there's no, there's no absolutes here. Like, if I were to, you know, start writing neo-Nazi stuff, it would be different, right? Mm-hmm. There are limits, but the idea um, that there's some kind of ideological test. If you don't meet it, we're going to fire you or or, or um, silence you. That's just not on the table at Mercer. Uh, it and so academic freedom in that sense is the lifeblood of of intellectual life. You know, so one of the things that I was reminded of this week is spaces in which diverse opinions can be encountered must be encountered and nobody's going to be silenced are really precious in a society that is so ideologically divided as Mm -hmm. ours is. I think the church can be that. What do you think? How do you think we're doing with that? Well, right now we're struggling. Um, One of the things that I get most concerned about with spaces like zoom is that little mute button that we are currently living in a church world where (laughs) even if we are in a community with people we strongly disagree with, we can just mute them. We can turn them off. We can turn off their camera and their microphone. <laughs> um, and you're, I know people that are doing that. I, I I've just, not done that. To, well, that's not true. I've done that too. Um, I was leading. I talked about this on my virtually church podcast uh, that you can find on all pod catchers um, where we talk about the difference in values between the church and technology that um, one of the times that I was leading our youth group, I have the overly enthusiastic sixth grade boy (laughs) who normally I end up throwing a dry erase marker at if I'm teaching in real space in virtual space he starts talking at turn his box turns yellow and the mute button comes up and I didn't even think I clicked it because that's what the technology demanded of me that's so symbolic isn't it yeah um and of, of course in community some opinions are so dangerous, so inflammatory, that they threaten the community itself. And um, this is actually what social media is dealing with. You know, Twitter having to figure out how to mark comments mm-hmm. that are uh, incite- inciting of violence or um, so misleading as to be dangerous. Facebook is, is under all kinds of pressure on this front right. as well. Um, do you know, think about all the billions of posts on Facebook every day and what kind of army of fact checkers and, uh, and inflammation checkers you would have to have to monitor. And the check sheet you would have to put on them. Right. Yeah. So now they're under pressure to do better because of misinformation that costs people their lives, like about 
COVID-19. Right. Right. Um, I would not be surprised uh, if the confrontation between President Trump and Twitter between now and the election leads to him being uh, taken off of off of Twitter. There are competitors of Twitter. Right. There are conservative versions of Twitter. There are Wild West versions of Twitter. Yeah. Another example is Reddit. Reddit is mm-hmm. under is under a great deal of challenge, uh, and they have had to remove some sites. You know, so it isn't like people can say just anything. There are limits that have to do with the broadest and most important human values, like people's safety. You know, actually, you know, during the Rwandan genocide, one of the main one of the main things that happened was there was a radio station that that everybody had and was listening to that was literally encouraging uh, Hutus to kill Tutsis and naming specific places where people should go and actually mm-hmm. having uh, lists of people who had not been killed yet. And they this person at this address, go there. It was like that. It was literally direct incitement to murder. They were like, radio was organizing mass murder. Now, obviously, anything, any public speech... Um, that is anything like that, obviously it cannot go, it cannot happen. Um, but the danger on the other side is your opinion is so surprising to me and so dangerous from my perspective that I'm going to pummel you until you retract it. But in a sense, even the community kind of decides what happens after that. Um, the feedback I got and the ferocity of it was forceful enough that I had to reconsider. The reconsidering made my argument better. I think that argument in that second post on Facebook was mm-hmm. better than the first one. Agreed. And so, lesson learned. If critiqued, try to sift through the hate and the noise to the substance. Mm-hmm. What is the concern here? And by the way, the concern will be different from different people. Um, and, and different concerns will be weighed differently. Like the concern from the pastors, you're making our job harder. That I took that very seriously. Right? It sounds like you are thundering at us that we should open our churches no matter what. Boy, I didn't want to leave that impression. So that needed to be corrected quickly. The idea that only one value matters here, and that value is not anybody bearing any risk that I, I needed to push back on. Right. And I did. Right. Um, now, people can honestly disagree about that. And people are honestly having those conversations in every sector right now. Business, sports, whatever. It's generally agreed that there are certain kinds of things where the risk-reward ratio is just so bad that you shouldn't do it. Right. Yeah. Like mass concerts or sporting events with large numbers of people. Can't do it. Um, higher education is such a challenge because... It's lots of people mm-hmm. who could get it, who are under a roof somewhere, in a room somewhere. That's a real challenge. Um, and so those are legitimate conversations to be had. But can you have them without demonizing? So how do we, as not the academic world, how? because you talked about the 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 hard conversation is being essential for academic 
um, success. How do we, as normal folks on the internet, handle negative response? And how do we disagree strongly civilly? What, What sort of tools does Christianity and the the kingdom ethics framework give us for strong negative discourse um well here's the main thing that comes to mind today attack the argument not the person attack the argument by refutation and by proposing a better argument okay so if a person Post something that you disagree with. By the way, during the election season, you know this is going to be awful, mm-hmm. right? There are whole families that can't be friends on Facebook because right. as soon as you have this first mention of somebody, and boom, off it goes, right? Anyway, I can't believe that you. Uh huh. Right. Right. So try to sift through the noise and look for the argument. What was the argument? If you see flaws in the argument, name them. Um, if you see omissions in the argument, name them. Then say, here's what's wrong with this argument, and here's the argument I would make instead. Um, if you can do that without elevating everything to DEFCON, you know, whatever, um, you know, alert, 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 incoming, incoming, you know. Um, Divergent opinion. You know, if you can, if you can do that, that's progress. By the way, churches have been torn up over people getting angry on Facebook. Yes. You know? Yes, we have. Right? So, um, Facebook itself doesn't have rules of discourse. So, we must, or, or Twitter, social media in general, they don't tell us what the rules are except for the at the very, very extremes, if they're. We have to impose rules ourselves. By the way, that might be interesting for churches to do is to say, the ethics of social media, here's the class that we offer yeah. to help you help all of us manage that. Last right. week, the, uh, the senior pastor at my church, um, incredible pastor. I've, I'm learning so much working with him. I uh, put out a video and he read the passage, uh, whatever is good, whatever is mm. true, whatever is be- post on these things and just walked <laughs> out of the camera <laughs> <laughs> post on these things. Um, I would also say it is rarely a good idea to post one's first reaction if one is emotional. Mm-hmm. Give yourself some time. Uh, give yourself 24 hours and see if you still feel the same way. Another thing I would recommend is get out a Word file and put it in Word first. And then let it sit there for a little bit. Sleep on it. Check the grammar. <laughs> Sleep on it and see if it still makes, if it's still what you want to say the next day. Um. By the way, if, even if you delete a post, people can retrieve it, and, and it can always be remembered, whatever you did. Yes. Well, it can always be remembered. Um, by the way, uh, this is a nonpartisan comment. Even before COVID, even before the George Floyd incident, the main thing that stood between Donald Trump and re-election was Twitter, his behavior on Twitter, um, his you could document that his popularity rating was probably about 10 points lower than it would have been all things considered because of his behavior on Twitter. So, I mean, 
out of control social media posting can can be that concretely damaging. So I try not to post angrily on Twitter or or any social media platform. I try to I try to to give it time, um, and not to ever attack a person. Um, try to attack the idea and make it make an argument. Yeah, I I try to treat my social media like it's a, pu- a publishing platform. Yeah, yeah. I want to think through it that way. It's a publishing platform, and it really is that. Um, that I'm curating a site. And for that matter, you're usually, especially if you're, you know, if you have uh, an, an audience, you're curating a conversation, mm-hmm. not just you, right? So, so I would say, I needed to respond to critics, but it was much easier, and to correct my argument where it was weak, and I did that. But it's much easier to do that if, I mean, it's just such a basic human impulse. If you're being beaten about the head and neck, your first thing is going to be to defend Mm -hmm. your head and neck. It's hard to think clearly when you're being beaten about the head and neck. Um, So, and if you have a problem with what somebody has posted, it's probably best to approach them in some other way. Not just the angry emoji? Not just the angry emoji or the angry post. Um, but with uh, an email, with a phone call. Um, when people used to get together in person, you know, a coffee. Yeah. Um, and The good uh, old days. Yeah, and see if, um, see if you can talk through the issues. Yeah. Like I, I had a wonderful conversation with a pastor friend on Tuesday who said, now Gushy, here's what you missed. You, your voice still carries a lot of authority. People heard you as AAR president, society Christian ethics president, distinguished university, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, all I really was was a guy with an opinion he said, but what they heard was. Yeah. So that was insightful from him. And I really learned a lot from that. And I put that in my Facebook kind of comment. I did not recognize the power that could be perceived in those words. And so lesson learned. But I did not learn that from somebody shouting at me. I learned it from somebody reaching out to me in love. There you go. Can I close this with a story? Yeah. Um, two weeks ago, something like that, I got on Facebook and I saw one of my uh, friends from my church had posted something with political tone to it. And as you scrolled through the comments on that post, other church people were there and they were not happy with the first person's political post. And it turned into an argument between three of them and then a shouting match between four of them. And then they brought in the name of the church. I can't believe you go to to my church with me. This isn't what my church represents. And it got really, really ugly. And I thought to myself, great. I'm going to have to call grown adults and tell them to apologize about Facebook. And I call... The, the person who posted the first thing that set it off. And she answers the phone and says, Oh, thank God, Pastor, I was just about to call you. I've made a terrible mistake, and I don't know how to fix it. 
and I call and so I said, well, let me, let's get you a talk to these people and we'll see what we can do. And I called the next person and they said, I, I was just about to call you. Do you have so-and-so's number? I need to apologize to her for what I said. And all of them were already, by the time I got a hold of them, already starting to do the church thing. They're getting ready to, one of them was writing a letter. One of them was writing an email. Two of them were preparing to make phone calls. And that day, all of them called all, <laughs> all three others and talked about their opinions and why their relationship with each other is more valuable than those opinions are. There's hope. <laughs> um, Purple church is really hard. Yeah, yeah, you're right. If you want to grow a church and have a big, beautiful, successful <laughs> church, um, the easiest way to do that would be homogeny. Yeah. Homogenous churches grow, they grow fast and proud. You get a bunch of people that look the same and think the same and talk the same and like the same music and read the same books in a building. Vote gonna, the same way. Yeah, they're going to love it together. Mm-hmm. But I'm not convinced that's what the kingdom of God looks like. In fact, I think one of the the greatest contributions, one of the greatest public contributions that churches can make right now is when we turn out to be purple churches, where here's the car in the parking lot that has the Biden sticker, and here's the car that has the Trump sticker. Oh, and here's the car that has the Kanye sticker. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't forget that. Um, and they're in worship together, and they've decided that their love of Jesus and of each other is far more important than those bumper stickers. Um, that's beautiful. And there are not many spaces these days where you actually find that. We have to protect those. We do. They must be cultivated and protected. Absolutely. And those are the places where the kingdom of God will break through. I think so. I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jeremy. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercy University Center for Theology and Public Life. We are on all the different social media platforms. We're on all the places you would listen to a podcast. And it helps us incredibly uh, to grow the show and spread this content. If you like, share, subscribe, ratings do wonders in the algorithms. Uh, Leave us a comment. Shoot us a message. You can find both of us on Facebook. You can find both of us online. David's content is at davidpgushy.com. Uh, My content is at RevJeremyHall.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to talk back to you. Um, We'd love to disagree with you civilly. We can practice some of these things we just talked about. Um, But it's good to interact, especially right now, while we all feel so isolated. So thank you for joining us on the journey. We'd love for you to join us in the conversation. Grace and peace, y'all.